Hello, and welcome to the Soul Horizon podcast. This is part one of what's going to be a two-part series on cosmic laws. So in this episode, we're going to be exploring a small handful of the most fundamental of the cosmic laws. So really starting with the basics and then expanding from there in the next episode. By this point in your life, you're probably very familiar with the laws that govern Earth and wherever it is that you've chosen to live. But what you might not know is that there are actually these cosmic laws that are at play as well, and they affect us really in every moment of our existence. Now, there's one cosmic law in particular that's gotten quite a lot of airtime, and that is the law of attraction. You've probably heard about the law of attraction at one point or another, or maybe you're very familiar with it. But what you might not know is that there are many spiritual laws in addition to the law of attraction that affect us while we're incarnated here on Earth. So in this episode in particular, we're going to be taking a look at two sort of categories or these broader categories of cosmic laws. And those two categories include a few of the basic laws of life and then also some of the laws of creation. There are other categories of laws as well, but again, we're going to be getting into those in the next episode, and those are a little bit more nuanced and sort of higher level type spiritual laws. We're going to start with those basic laws of life. So number one, as above, so below, and as within, so without. If you study sacred geometry or you're familiar with it, you'll know that this is a very common phrase that's used in relation to sacred geometry. For example, the Fibonacci sequence can be seen in snail shells, it can be seen in flowers, pine cones, and many other parts of nature. And this is something that when you look very, very close, you see the sequence as well as when you pull back. You can get into other aspects of sacred geometry in relation to this as above, so below. But that's probably a conversation for another day. So let's get into how this law in particular applies to everyday life. There's a quote by Diana Cooper in this wonderful book she has called A Little Light on the Spiritual Laws. In the book, she says, quote, The universe rearranges itself to reflect your reality, literally as within, so without, end quote. So while we can observe this phenomenon in the physical world, We can also observe it in a more subtle or nuanced way in the way we experience life itself. And the way that this plays out is that whatever you focus on with integrity and consistency within will be given to you or reflected back to you in the outside world as well. It could also be reflected back to you in your physical body, but really what this is saying is whatever you're experiencing internally within will somehow be brought to you as a reflection in the outer reality of the physical world or within your physical body. For example, peace within leads to peace without. Judgment within leads to judgment without. Love within leads to love without. World peace is a great example because it's something that the vast majority of us desire. And yet so often our expectations for how it will be made manifest are related to aspects of the external world that we perhaps believe need to be modified or changed. 
The thing is, though, and bringing this back to Diana Cooper's example, she makes note that when every individual person finds true inner peace, there will automatically be world peace. What's interesting about this is that it's incredibly simple, and yet it's profoundly difficult because it's so much easier when the issue is outside of ourselves, or at least the mind perceives it to be that way. And when we're told to turn inwards and really work on that inner peace within, it can feel scary or lonely or daunting. Like, where do I start? We can all be extraordinarily kind to those around us, and yet incredibly unkind to ourselves within. And yet, whatever we're doing inside is going to be mirrored in the outside world as well. Bringing it back to that example, it's also important to note that for every person and for each person who really finds that true inner peace, they become a beacon of light, essentially, that energetically influences the people around them and in contact with them in a way that encourages or gently inspires them to do the same. And so it really creates this ripple effect. We've talked about this before, about the ripple that can be caused by one decision, one person, and then how it ripples out and affects the next and the next. And it really becomes this cascade of waves around us. All right, moving on to law number two. This is actually sort of a a joint law here. So it's the laws of free will and the law of non-interference. The laws of free will and non-interference are directly related to one another, so I just felt it was easier to examine them together. The law of free will essentially is that when we're here on Earth, we all have the free will choice to make any decision that we want. Elsewhere in the universe, free will isn't an option. Because this is such a dense dimensional atmosphere, it's easy to stray from our sort of fated path or this higher path of evolution or expansion for our soul. We always have the free will to stray from that path, but it pulls us off course. Because we have free will, we all have free will, So many of us can find ourselves off course at any given time, and this really starts to cause this sort of cascade of ripples in these directions that perhaps weren't in the greatest or highest good for everyone. I hope this is making sense, but if we didn't have free will, we would essentially always act in accordance with our higher self and really that fated path of expansion and evolution. Because we have free will, we can choose to act in accordance with that sort of intuitive will or divine guidance that we all are able of receiving within, or we can make choices that pull us further and further away from that path. Sometimes the differences can feel very, very subtle, and yet the impact over time, if consistently diverting from that faded path, ends up being quite profound. Now, if you're familiar with this idea, you probably also have heard about the law of non-interference. I'm going to move in alignment with my higher self here and ignore my ego because it's wanting to shut this down right now, as it has in previous episodes too, where it just gets really nervous and tentative about, you know, what is so-and-so going to think or, you know, what is this person going to think? But anyway, back to this topic. So the law of non-interference essentially says that other beings outside of Earth, 
whether they're physical beings or ethereal beings, in other words, they're in light bodies or non-physical entities, they cannot interfere with the choices that play out on Earth or interfere with anyone's free will on this planet. Now, there have been supposedly some gentle adaptations made to that because free will is so difficult. We very likely would have blown ourselves up by now, to be just totally frank. Um, And so there have been gentle redirections made to put us on a better trajectory. And another creative workaround has been that souls that typically weren't incarnating on Earth, either from other planetary systems or even higher dimensional realms like angelic souls, things like that, are now incarnated on Earth and have been incarnating for quite some time and will continue to incarnate to sort of rebalance the energy and help make that shift, as we've mentioned before, to this new dimensional consciousness with far more potential to move towards things like world peace and this unity consciousness that we're moving towards. So again, that's not interference because if a soul's coming in and incarnating in a physical body, they're still subject to the law of free will as well. It's just that the energy that they're pulling in through their soul is typically able to find its way through the illusion of this world quicker than someone who's been repeatedly incarnating on Earth and has been sort of stuck in that cycle here. I hope this is making sense. My mind right now is just like, be quiet. What are you saying? You're going to edit this out later, but I'm not going to. So hopefully you hear this in there. You will. Okay, moving on to the third law. What we resist persists. So this is the law of resistance. And when we resist something or someone, what happens is that we simultaneously zero in on it with our focus and attention, and we attempt to push it away, which is this very funny, contradicting type of energy. So resistance is a highly powerful and very demanding energy, so it's really draining. And the more we resist something or someone, the more that it becomes stuck within our experience. And this is because that energy around resistance is so potent and so powerful. Surrender is the way out of resistance. So just surrendering to what is. A very practical example of this at play is the fear-tension-pain cycle. This is often talked about in relation to childbirth. But it really applies widely to pain across the board. What happens is that when we feel pain, we typically start to fear it immediately. And when we do this, we activate the sympathetic nervous system, which then puts us into fight, flight, or freeze mode. And when we're in this mode, these physical changes start to occur as a result of the release of stress hormones that, again, were released by that sensation or that feeling of fear. And then this causes the body to increase tension in preparation to fight or take flight, whichever it might be. And of course, this increase in tension leads to experiencing a higher level of pain because the energy can't be released. It gets stuck. The fear-tension-pain cycle stops once we surrender to the pain without resistance. I have this very distinct memory when I was giving birth to my first daughter, Sloan, of the doula that was working with me coming over and lightly rubbing downward on my forehead, basically to get me to stop 
tensing my forehead. And when she would do this, at first I would feel fearful, like don't take away my outlet for this pain. But as I would move into that and really start to try and relax, the pain would ease. So now going back to the law of resistance, instead of resisting what you don't want, envision what you do want and surrender to what is right now. When you do this, you stop giving energy and attention and focus to whatever it is that you've been resisting, and it starts to fall out of alignment with the frequency that you're moving into. And as you do this, you'll draw in what you desire. Diana Cooper has a quote that says, quote, don't, can't, won't, or not are words which invoke the law of resistance. Always embrace the positive rather than resisting the negative, end quote. And I want to clarify that she doesn't mean embrace the positive as in toxic positivity or like, you know, just ignoring quote unquote negative experiences. What she means is that focus on what you do want instead of what you don't want. So focusing on what you don't want, again, will only hold it in your reality for a longer period of time because focusing on it is sending energy to it. And that energy you're sending is a vibrational match for whatever it is that you're resisting because you're so focused on it that you're essentially becoming it energetically. Diana Cooper has a really easy and wonderful exercise for releasing resistance. What she says to do is to write down all of your fears about what it is that you're resisting on a piece of paper and then carefully burn the paper. So then you want to get really clear about what you do want and write that down as well. And I liked this too. She talks about resisting chores and tasks that you just really don't want to do, probably things like, you know, taxes, and the like. And she says, quote, any task appears difficult in direct proportion to our level of resistance, end quote. I thought that that was a really practical take on it. It made a lot of sense to me. Also, when we notice patterns in what we're consistently resisting, like it's the same thing coming up time and time again, we start to open up to very important wisdom. And when we notice these patterns of resistance, we can then get curious and ask ourselves questions. So things like, you know, what is the content of my resistance trying to show me? Or where am I holding on or resisting internally and why? And when you get curious about things, you start to sort of loosen your grip on clinging to them as well. Law number four, you can't change the reflection in the mirror, but you can change yourself. This is more commonly known as the law of reflection. And I'll also briefly talk about the law of projection in relation to this as well. The universe mirrors back to us what we are, what we judge, or what we need to heal and reclaim in ourselves. I talked about this in a previous episode on self-reclamation. Definitely worth listening to if you haven't before, and I'll link it in the show notes. But the point here is that the situations and people that show up in our lives are mirroring back to us either what we are or what we need to heal or, again, reclaim within ourselves. Keep in mind that there are a few very important exceptions to this rule, things like soul contracts. I will get into those at another point. For the most part, though, the law of reflection holds true. The thing is, though, is that oftentimes when something or someone shows up in life that we don't like or don't want, we respond by trying to change it. 
when what we're actually being guided to do is to look within and change ourselves. Diana Cooper, again, gives a wonderful example of this in her book, and she says, quote, When you look in a mirror and see that your eyes look heavy and tired, you do not try to change the reflection. You eat a healthier diet and you get more sleep so that the reflection changes, end quote. The key to honoring the law of reflection is that we need to stop trying to change the reflection. Instead, we can allow the reflection to guide us back to ourselves to reflect, essentially. This allows us to change our world from within. And in turn, the mirror that gets held up to us once we've made those changes then reflects back to us those changes that we've made. So we observe the outer and we change the inner. And then when the outer world shows us something that we don't like, we can become a curious detective of our inner world. And, you know, think about things. You know, what is this outer reflection guiding me to uncover, notice, or heal within? This is especially true when we notice repeating patterns. Repeating reflections are trying to speak to us and really get us to turn inward and self-reflect. You see this a lot with relationship dynamics where perhaps someone really wants a loving relationship but tends to draw in people who aren't capable of loving them. Oftentimes, the root of instances like these is that that person might be denying their own self-love within. A quick note on projection. So when there's projection, there's a denial of self-reflection. At the core, what projection is, is it's merely an exaggerated form of denial of something that's going on within us. So we seek to deny an aspect of ourselves with such conviction that we end up seeing it in everyone around us. We feel triggered and activated constantly because there's something within that we're denying, either a shadow that needs to be acknowledged, a point that needs to be healed, or perhaps an element or aspect of ourselves within that this other person or situation has that we aren't willing to honor. And so instead, we're just pretending that we don't have it and pointing out fault in everyone that does. These Uncomfortable reminders that we see in other people inspire the ego to project outward in an effort to self protect. It just does not want to look there. It's like, no, 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 that doesn't exist within me. No part of it does. So I'm just going to notice it everywhere else around me so that I can really separate myself from whatever it is that I don't want or don't believe I have. In noticing and judging what it doesn't want to be or doesn't think it has, the ego attempts to distance itself from that aspect. The stronger and louder someone projects, the more potent the denial that they're experiencing within. Of course, this can be completely subconscious and sort of submerged under the water, but it's there and it's big and it's really important to reflect on for this reason. Law number five. Appreciate, don't attach. So this is related to the law of attachment. We talked about attachment in a recent episode, and we talked about how every attachment that we make creates a thread that tethers us in place. Now, eventually, through the power of our emotions and focused attention, those threads become ropes and the ropes become anchors. This is especially true if our attachments are very strong. And we can't step fully into our power when we're stuck in place. 
So freeing ourselves from our attachments gives us the freedom to move fully into our power as it shifts and morphs and changes and really manifests in accordance with our divine path. A very important note here, and tying this into that appreciate-don't-attach mentality, is that there's a very big difference between having beautiful things, appreciating them, and being grateful for them, and needing those things to know who you are and in order to be happy. The same goes for relationships. There's a difference between having a beautiful, loving relationship, appreciating it, and really feeling into it and being grateful for it, and needing that relationship in order to feel happy and whole. Those are two distinct things. It's not that we can't feel immense enjoyment and appreciation for and gratitude for these experiences and things that we have in our lives. It's just that when we start to need them, It moves us into a dangerous place where suffering is almost guaranteed at some point or another. So again, appreciate, don't attach. And this applies to people, places, things, and even emotions like energetic states. When enjoying morphs into needing, we've formed an attachment and we become stuck because needing is fearing. And fear locks our energetic gears and holds us in place because we just can't move forward. Diana Cooper has many amazing quotes on this topic. Here are some quotes from her to provide a little bit more clarity. So, quote, a master can enjoy a beautiful home, but if it is taken away, it does not affect how he feels about himself, end quote. Also, Quote, attachment is conditional love. A master loves unconditionally, and this does not form chords. He allows the people he loves to be free and to be themselves. If someone he loves leaves or dies, he mourns but is not devastated. He remains centered, end quote. That quote in particular, I think, is so helpful because it can be difficult to the mind to figure out how to wrap our heads around being unattached but paying our respects and really holding compassion for other people in our lives particularly if loss is involved. So there is that difference there between mourning and devastation and still remaining centered and balanced while also allowing energy and the emotions of the experience to flow freely outward. Now we're moving into the laws of creation. So law number six, abundance. The law of abundance is just as much about our willingness to give as it is about our willingness to receive. It's really this two-way street, and this includes our willingness to give to ourselves as well as our willingness to give to others. Both are equally important. A lot of us want to give to others thinking that we're in alignment with kindness and we will deny our own needs to do this. But the law of abundance really insists that that is a two-way street and that you can't give fully to another if you haven't given fully to yourself. When we're living in a state of abundance, things like love, joy, prosperity, and generosity are really flowing to us and from us with ease. There's also a gracefulness to the way that this happens. So what are some things that block the flow of abundance? We are our own biggest block to abundance. So our thoughts, beliefs, and feelings of worthiness or deservingness are often common barriers to abundance. 
Another thing that can get in the way is having beliefs around money being a quote-unquote bad thing or even associating it with greed or this unhinged, forceful type of power. Another block to abundance is having abundance but fearing the loss of it because this puts us into a poverty consciousness. An example of this would be someone who's extraordinarily wealthy by conventional standards or even the world standards, and yet they're still completely immersed in poverty consciousness. So in other words, they're fearing the loss of that abundance constantly. This type of belief, so this belief in poverty consciousness, is really fueled by fear. Money, of course, is energy, and when we hold on to money or hoard it away because we fear losing it, then we're stuck in poverty consciousness and we're really blocking the flow of abundance. There is a difference, of course, between saving and respecting money and hoarding it. Those are two different energies. One is much more aligned with a prosperity consciousness of abundance for the future, and the other is aligned with fear of never wanting to spend anything because of the attachment to that abundance state. We have to allow that energetic exchange of giving and receiving to occur in order to fully align with abundance consciousness. When we embody abundance, we have enough and we recognize that it's plentiful. Because of this, we're not worried about losing what we have, and we know that there is a generous flow to and from constantly. It's also important to honor the responsibility of having such abundance and to act with wisdom and grace. When we do this, we allow the flow of wealth in and out. So if we're acting in very greedy ways or not in a loving way with that abundance, that is also a block or more a stopgap to more abundance. All right, law number seven, the law of attraction, the one that everyone knows or almost everyone knows. So this is the law that says like attracts like and very much like magnets, except sort of the opposite. We either attract or we repel. So whereas magnets, you want opposite poles facing one another to attract. In this case, we want to become the energy of whatever it is that we want to attract. We want to mirror that and it will be drawn to us. Something important to note here is that desperation repels, like it really repels. Desperation, clinginess, needing, those intense wanting to pull something in, that is a really repelling energy. On the other hand, contentment with what is exactly as it is, is magnetic. And it draws in whatever it is you intended or desired. But it's important to note that contentment with what is doesn't mean that you don't have desires for the future or have visions of what it is that you want in your life. It's just that you have an appreciation for life as it is now without needing those things to come your way. That's a big difference. This is getting into quantum manifestation, but desperation really causes an interference pattern that keeps us closed off to receiving. However, when we find contentment with our situation as it is, that interference pattern dissipates and softens, and then we exude a frequency that's a vibrational match to what it is that we desire. This then reaches out into the quantum field, 
and collapses down the potential that's in alignment with what it is that we were feeling and desiring. The law of attraction draws in what we are, frequency-wise, I'm speaking to. So if we want something, we must become the frequency of it to draw it in. The law of attraction sometimes also draws in what we need to heal. Some examples of this attracting what we need to heal would be if you believe that no one understands you, you'll attract people who don't understand you. If you believe you're undeserving of love, you'll attract people who aren't capable of offering you unconditional love. And if you believe people aren't trustworthy, you'll draw people into your life who are deceptive. This isn't a punishment and it's not a bad thing to have these experiences because these experiences teach us more about what it is that we do want. Oftentimes, there's this weird sort of energy of shaming and blaming with law of attraction, and I I truly can't stand it. It's very shaming. Like, if you draw something into your life that someone else perceives as negative or you perceive as negative, you know, and someone comes along and says, well, there you go. You drew it into your life. Law of attraction. Not helpful at all. And it could be for this reason of needing to heal or one of the other caveats, because there are several caveats to law of attraction that often aren't spoken about. And instead, just this sort of shaming attitude is perpetuated over and over again. Something about this always stirs up this sort of soapbox moment in me. But I just think so many people have been loud about the shaming aspect, and very few have been loud about this. And it it gets under my skin because too many people have been shamed for negative experiences through people who have promoted the law of attraction. And it's just, it's not that clear cut. And there are many other reasons why. So I'm just going to, I'm going to address some of these important exceptions now and then just come back to what I was saying. I've mentioned this before in the quantum manifestation episode, which I can link in the show notes. But to briefly cover some of these caveats to law of attraction, one, pre-existing soul contracts. We all come in with soul contracts, and a soul contract can be an experience or a situation that our self, as we are in this lifetime, would perceive as incredibly negative. But our soul chose it because of the higher path of learning and lessons that it afforded. Another caveat to law of attraction would be things like karmic connections and consequences from other lifetimes. Now, these don't have to be negative consequences per se. You could have accrued a lot of really great karma in another incarnation. And so you may have a string of good luck. And you might be someone who just has these amazing things fall into your lap, not necessarily because you've put forth any really determined effort, but because there's that windfall from a previous life. All right, I'm going to wrap that part up because I don't want to go off on too far of a tangent because I've talked about it before. But related to the law of attraction, we can become stuck in patterns of attraction. It's very easy to do this. So sometimes we'll consciously think about circumstances that we want to be different, but there's a subconscious belief pattern that keeps repeating that saying otherwise. And this could be for many reasons. So, you know, childhood wounds or traumas or perhaps because we subconsciously desire for things to stay the same because they're familiar. So this, too, causes an interference pattern when we're consciously thinking that we want one thing. But the subconscious is believing that it wants another. And these two 
things playing out ends up creating a very confused signal. Both our conscious thoughts as well as our subconscious beliefs are subject to the law of attraction. So if our conscious thought patterns are wildly out of touch with what our subconscious is sort of spinning and, you know, running around with in there, then we'll have quantum signals that essentially cancel one another out. Or one of those things, for instance, the subconscious, might be putting out a more powerful signal than the other in which case it will eventually win out. All right, moving on. Number eight is the law of manifestation. So if the law of attraction is the why, then the law of manifestation is the how. This is how we bring the law of attraction into physical reality. Masters of manifestation are masters of their thoughts and emotions. This is not just putting things up on a vision board and letting it sit in the back of your closet and expecting things to magically manifest in your life. Unfortunately, that's another sort of stereotype that's taken hold, and it's really done a disservice to everyone's understanding of the way that this plays out. To become a master of manifestation, what we need to do is this sort of series of steps and just keep repeating this. So step number one is to get clear about what it is that we want to manifest. Clarity is key. So meditating with the intention of connecting to your higher self to gain clarity about your desires can be really important here because it needs to be in alignment with our higher self and what's in our highest good and the best interest of others as well. Or it's going to be met with a lot of resistance and not flow very easily. Step number two is to visualize. So visualize the outcome of what it is that you'd like to manifest. And as you're visualizing, you want to be sure to really feel into the emotional state of your future self. So how does she feel? Really anchor that feeling into your body as you're visualizing. And it creates a very powerful picture for your mind. Ohm, the sound and vibration of creation, really accelerates manifestation. So it can be helpful to vocalize the sound of Ohm while you're visualizing your desire to really enhance the manifestation potential of what you're doing. Regarding the visualization process, Diana Cooper says, quote, You hold your thoughts in your left brain and pictures in your right brain. Pictures are more powerful than thoughts. If you think success but picture failure, you will fail. Furthermore, when your thoughts and pictures are in opposition, two powerful aspects of you are fighting. This leads to depression, exhaustion, and confusion, end quote. Step number three is to intend. And when you intend, you want to intend for the highest good while trusting in the universe's ability and willingness to deliver it to you. Step number four is to feel as if. So feel as if it is already so, and so it shall be. Many talk about the act as if principle, but I've learned that the most important thing is to feel as if. This is because our emotions create the signal that goes out into the quantum field. We can walk around acting as if we've manifested great abundance, but if we don't truly feel abundant, then we're acting one way and sending out an entirely different signal. Feeling and emotion are the chosen languages of the quantum field. And it's through our feelings that we really converse with the cosmos, so to speak. 
So when we feel and emote, we're notifying the universe of what it is that we'd like to draw down into physical reality. You can have all the clarity in the world and visualize daily and even have the best of intentions. But if the feelings that you have right now in this moment don't match everything else, then your manifestation signal is incoherent or it's weak. And mismatched feelings create this interference pattern. So be mindful also of limiting beliefs. For example, if you're trying to manifest a loving relationship, but you have limiting beliefs around your own worthiness of love, this causes an interference pattern and will either completely cancel out your ability to manifest this potential future, or you might receive a mixed bag. So perhaps you'll find yourself in a relationship that at first appears really loving, but then turns out to be highly conditional love. Step number five, detach, don't cling. Part of being able to feel as if is our ability to detach from the desire. We want it, sure, so we know what we want. We have clarity around what it is that we desire, but our satisfaction and joy isn't dependent upon it. So what this involves is essentially finding so much satisfaction and joy right here and right now that other than the brief time we spend visualizing each day, we're not even thinking about the desire. Because the journey itself is just so wonderful and so enjoyable that we're savoring it. This can be a hard state to get into depending on what's going on in life. So it doesn't have to be every moment of every day that you're feeling this way. But the general tone can be to find lessons in the difficulties and to really feel into the sense of appreciation for what life is allowing you to learn through your experiences. A practical example would be if you live in a house that your family has outgrown and you just feel like you're bursting at the seams and you would just love to manifest a, you know, gigantic house, whatever it might be. What you can do is to hold that desire in mind, but then really come back to connecting with your appreciation for what you have right now. You know, I am so grateful because I have a roof over my head. You know, I'm protected from the elements. I have a warm place to go at night. I love this room and and really feel it. It's one thing to think all of these things and sort of pass by them. It's another thing to think them and then move those thoughts into your emotional body and really feel through the experience of appreciation. Step number six is to take action in alignment. So you're going to take action in alignment with your intention and your heart, not your mind or sometimes your mind, but mostly you want to focus on that feeling of alignment with your heart. A note on taking action is that in the third dimension and fourth dimension, action of some sort and to some degree is still very necessary. But in the fifth dimension, as dimensional frequency raises, Less action is required because the manifestation process is much quicker and it's more effortless too. This is because there's simply less density for our emotional signal to move through in order to access the quantum field. When you're first starting out with intentional manifestation, it can help to start very, very small. But don't be mistaken, this is not because manifesting smaller things is easier than manifesting bigger things. As Abraham Hicks so accurately hinted at, it's as easy to manifest a button as it is a castle. But a key to manifestation is believing before seeing. So often we're told that seeing is believing, but here it has to be the opposite. 
And it's easier for the mind to believe in the potential of manifesting something small before it can really truly believe in manifesting something big. A small manifestation helps the brain to start getting on board with the idea that, okay, maybe this does work. An example of a small manifestation was I once ran out of these gold jelly roll pens that I used to use when I would write in my daily planner. And I went to order them and they were completely sold out on Amazon. They weren't coming for, I don't know, it was like close to a month or something like that. What I did was I just was like, you know what? It's fine. I'll find another pen. It's no big deal. I'll order these. I'll wait. You know, it's it's just a pen. I'll make do. And I just forgot about it. And then within the span of a few days or a week, I forget, but it was quite close to when I had this experience, what happened was that I had ordered some face oil, so something entirely unrelated, and I opened up the box that it came in, and there was a full jelly roll pen, so a pen full of ink, the exact color and type of pen that I use, same brand, same everything, full of ink in the box. Like basically what had happened was someone had accidentally dropped it in there when it was shipped out. And it was just this sort of perfect experience where I was like, that was easy. You know, it wasn't that big of a deal, but I had to let go of my attachment to the manifestation process. And it really started getting me thinking about how effortless it can be. And step number seven is to repeat. Law number nine is go with the flow and flow where you're being guided. So this is the law of flow. If you picture water in a very gently flowing stream, this is a really good example of this law. So the water really moves as it's guided by nature, and it's flowing over and around obstacles without any resistance or without much resistance. It might run into things like boulders or rocks, tree roots or branches, but it doesn't stop to gawk at the obstacles on its path it just finds a way around them. In fact, it doesn't even really consider these things to be obstacles because in the end, they've guided the water to where it needed to be and where it was destined to go. My point here is that what we perceive to be obstacles are often exactly what we needed to redirect us on our way forward to our destined path. On a slightly related note is the next law, which is law number 10. If it's for you, it will find you. And if it's not for you, it will fall away. So if something or someone is meant for you, but you're repeatedly ignoring or avoiding or even repressing the experience of it, it will eventually come to you in a much louder and maybe even a harsher way. This is if it's really, really meant for you. So of course, things that are meant for us and we open our arms to, they move into our life quite easily and it's quite apparent that they were meant for us. But sometimes we resist things that are meant for us because it seems scary or unknown. And in these cases, we're often ignoring our intuition when it's nudging us towards these things because they scare us. They scare us because they're going to stir up some element of uncertainty within us or the unknown. And not knowing where our path leads really terrifies us or really it terrifies the ego or the mind. This is especially true when we've grown accustomed to whatever path we're on. So if we're really, really comfortable with where we're at and sort of this predictable path of where we think we're going, any element of unknown becomes that much scarier because we've really attached ourselves to that path. So if we're walking through the woods and we're on this path of comfort, In our minds, what we've seen ahead of us is just that it's going to be totally clear, it's going to be obvious, it's going to be paved out, 
and free from things like thorns and burrs and definitely free from bears. But if we're repeatedly ignoring the same strong pull to do something that forces us off this comfortable path, but the thing that we're avoiding is meant for us, then the universe will find a way. And it might start thickening that once comfortable path, bringing in thorny bushes or maybe making it a little bit confusing for us because we're hitting these obstacles we didn't expect. And if we're really, really, really stubborn and we're just ignoring all of those feelings and messages, then perhaps, you know, a grizzly will pop out and just scare us right off into the deep, dark woods out of the blue. Again, if something is meant for you, it will find you or you will be forced to find it in some way. And if something is not meant for you or it's no longer meant for you, you'll be met with blocks or barricades until you decide to let go or jump ship or just allow it to phase out of your life. And law number 11, intending is far more powerful than wanting. This is the law of intention. So at first consideration, wanting and intending seem somewhat synonymous with one another, but they're very, very different energies. So wanting is this sort of passive yearning, and then intending is a very focused, directed, indecisive desire. So the energy of intending is laser-focused, and for that reason, it's very, very powerful, whereas the energy of wanting is sort of spread thin and broad, and it can be diverted. And because it's so diverted, it's less powerful. As I was working on writing this section, the visualization or the visual of a bow and arrow and an archer came to my mind. And then a little while later, I was reading through Diana Cooper's book and referencing it for something else. And she had the same exact visual in there. And it was a part that I hadn't even read. And it was just really interesting because she used it for the law of intention. If you're shooting a bow and arrow, wanting something would be noticing the target you want to hit. But intending to hit it is really grabbing the arrow, drawing it back into your bow, aligning your shot, and then confidently releasing as you aim to hit that target. So once the arrow is released, there's so much energy behind it that it's not going to be stopped by anything but the target or a very forceful barrier that gets in its way. But either way, it's moving forward with momentum and it's going to strike something. So noticing the target and thinking about hitting it isn't the same as launching the arrow. The former has a small bit of energy behind it, whereas the latter is full of energy that's very clear, direct, and focused. One important final note on intentions is to always make sure your intentions are made in alignment with the highest good. And you can check in with this by checking in with your higher self. Intentions that come from the ego's lower desires are nowhere near as powerful as those that are made from the higher self's divine will. The same is true of manifestation. So if you're manifesting from the ego's lower will or desires, you're going to have to pair that manifestation with a lot more action and force than if you're attempting to make something manifest in alignment with your higher self. There's a lot more powerful energy behind the latter because it's backed by that divine will. All right, let's leave it here for today. I hope that this offered something of value to you. And as always, thank you so, so much for listening. It really, it means so much. And I really hope that these episodes are bringing something useful into your life. I'll be back next week with part two of this two-part series. Until then, take care. 